So this morning, if you would with me, turn to John chapter 2, please. The Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 2. We're looking at the story of Nicodemus. Um, some of you have no idea who I am, so a quick introduction. My name's Paul. I'm married to Kate. She was here just now with our little baby. Um, that's our fifth child. That's three weeks old, um, and that is it, um, unless the Lord <laughs> speaks from heaven above. I thought I was done at three, and my wife begged me for one more, and who am I to resist? So we had four, and then number five was, was uh, another one of those moments. So that's how we got you. So this is, this is what we do. This is what we love. Um, we, we get to lead the team that leads this church, and we have a lot of fun doing so. We've got a business background, um, but three years ago, sold all the businesses and a full-time doing this now, and grateful for it. Still feeling every day um, ill-equipped, um, unable to do exactly what I would love to dream I could be, but also aware that God uses humble, broken people, problem-filled people, just like me, to do His job, just like you to do his job. All right, are you there? John chapter 2. If you aren't, just follow with me on the screen. We're going to read from verse 23, talking about Jesus. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, which is, Another way of saying, listen carefully, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, listen carefully, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, or listen carefully, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then maybe the most famous verse in the whole of God's word, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
There's probably a whole bunch of things in there which are vague for you, which seem like weird metaphors. We're going to get into some of that this morning, and I'm going to do it under, under three headings. So this is where we're going this morning. I want to look firstly at man's search for God. Secondly, I want to show why it doesn't work, why he keeps on looking, but he never finds what he's looking for. And thirdly, I want to look at God's search for man. So that's, the, that's how we're going to break it out this morning in this passage in John chapter 2. So the first one is man's search for God. And I don't know if you've noticed, but people are all trying to find different roads to God. There's something in, in our culture, in our Western culture, that, that, that loves the idea of, of all roads leading to Rome. As if somehow that would be more, a more inclusive gospel, that, that no one would be judged. Except, of course, that idiot who did this and this to my family. So we, don't, we say we don't want anybody to be judged, but then we think about the guy who screwed us over in business, and we're quite glad that something's going to happen. We're hoping it's his comeuppance is going to happen. Or we think about rape, or we think about murder, or we think about these different things, and we really hope that they get what they got coming for them. But when it comes to us, no, no, we, we'd, we'd like to choose our own road to get to God. Thank you very much. Don't you judge me. Maybe it's because the road that God offers is unpalatable. Maybe it's offensive. Maybe it's an offensive road. Why, why would you do it like this card? Maybe it just sounds far-fetched to you, like a, like a fable or a story. Maybe, maybe this morning you say, well, I, but I tried God. I, I gave him a try, and it didn't work out the way I was expecting it to, and so that's not, that can't be the path. That can't be how I'm going to get to God. And as we read this text in John this morning, there's, there's two immediately obvious paths that these people that are speaking in this in this gospel are trying to use to reach God the first one we see at the end of chapter 2 and it's people were so impressed with the miracles of Jesus they want to place their faith in the miracles of Christ they were placing their faith in him in a, in a manner of speaking because they were wowed by what he was doing for them wow Jesus can do all these things in my life I mean how can you deny what's going on right in front of you In verse 23, it says it. Now, when they were in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Even Nicodemus uses this logic. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? What am I basing this assumption on? Because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we see firstly that there's this attempt to come to God through faith in what he can do. Through faith in in the miracles that he can do. Or for believing in something that God could do for us. Or something we would expect him to do for us. Secondly, and maybe more clearly even, we see a picture of a man, Nicodemus, who by every earthly judgment that we could put on him, epitomizes the exact chap who we feel ought to be able to come to God. If there's anyone who ought to be able to come to God, it's a guy like Nicodemus. He's He's a devout man. From a respected denomination. This is, this is a man who's a Pharisee. And if you go and read about the Pharisees and what they had to do. It is no small moral task to be a Pharisee. He was devoted. He's an important person in society. He's a man who's called a ruler of the Jews. So he's not just a Pharisee and, and a teacher in, among the Pharisees, but he's also been put on the Sanhedrin, which is, which is the ruling party of the Jews. So they're the, the kind of council, the guys who set the laws and they judge people. And you can see Jesus coming before the Sanhedrin and other people coming before the Sanhedrin. He's a man 
on top of all of these already great qualities, he's a man who respects Jesus. When he speaks to him, he's respectful. He even admires him. And he says, Jesus, you're a teacher sent from God. He says, Jesus, I believe your miracles. He says, Jesus, God must be giving you the power to do these things. And so there's an admiration of Christ. And it, it can't, it can't, I couldn't help but think how like today that is, where we hear so often, yes, yes, Jesus is a good moral teacher. Yes, yes, Jesus teaches us things that are worth learning. I mean, after all, isn't that why I send my kids to Sunday school? You know, in Somerset West, we have a much larger congregation and a much larger kids' church. There's parents who literally, week after week, come and drop their kids at the kids' church and go for a date. But there's still something in that, that they're saying, I want my kids to learn it, but actually, I, I don't, I'm, I'm kind of beyond that. But the kids should learn the basic moral teachings of Jesus. Well, because it's good for them, right? It helps them not bully other kids at school or fight or whatever it is. And maybe you say, well, he's a, he's a wonderful prophet, just like Muhammad or just like any other prophet. And then I'm sure that most of us in our hearts, we say, yes, this is exactly the kind of man who ought to be acceptable to God. Surely, this is the kind of guy. And so we, we can see quite clearly that Nicodemus believed very many good things about God. And yet, in the next section, we'll see so clearly that Jesus says it's not enough. It's like that, that U2 song, and it's, the song is about God, as lots of U2 songs are. But the, the one that they famously sing is, I've climbed the highest mountain, I've run through the fields only to be with you. Do you know the song? Should I sing it? I've run, I've crawled, I've scaled these city walls, these city walls only to be with you. And then he sings this terribly sad line, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And if you go and read the other verses in that song, it's, it's phenomenally poetic. There's so much. Anyway, I like you too. And so man, I mean, we could go through, we could go through 15, 20, 30, 100 different routes that people are genuinely, sincerely, I'm not mocking them, I'm not saying that, they, that they're idiots or they're stupid or anything like that. They're genuinely trying to reach out for God, but they want to do it in their way. And this is just two. I've just pulled out two quick ones from the Gospel of John in this text that we're reading. So man is searching for God. But secondly, man's search turns up nothing. He can't find him. We see the crowds and even Nicodemus placing their, their faith in miracles. But we read in, in chapter 2 verse 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. In other words, he didn't need anybody to tell him about the badness of man. It says, for he himself knew what was in man. Now what does this text mean? What does it mean for he himself knew what was in man? It means that Jesus knew of their deep desire to chase things which would benefit them. He's talking about the fact that they want to believe in the miracles and they put faith in the miracles, but they refuse to believe in the miracle maker. They refuse to believe in Jesus. They don't want to believe in him and him crucified in his cross. They want to believe in the good things that he brings, the benefits that he'll bring into their lives. Sounds to me like the prosperity gospel, which is becoming so popular around the world. Just like when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then he turned around and said, the only reason you are following me is because I gave you bread. 
and then he offends them deeply. But when you come to the prosperity gospel, why, why would you not believe in a Santa Claus God? A God who kind of bellows out, ho, 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 over your sins and kind of winks, it's okay. And then tips his big bag of goodies over us and says, be blessed, my children. Why wouldn't we believe in, in this kind of prosperity gospel God? But Jesus says, no. Faith is not through miracle believing. Faith, you can't come to me through just the benefits that I will bring to your life. Because along with those benefits, as many of us know, are many, many trials which we are promised because they're good for us. And it's a joy for us, even though they're tough. And then when we look at Nicodemus, Jesus is, is almost rude in this encounter. He interrupts. Nicodemus and Nicodemus has come with this question and says teacher you're a good teacher and you're sent from God and Jesus just cuts right through all of it and gets to the chase and he says truly truly I say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God and Jesus is cutting through Nicodemus's I believe in miracles he's cutting through I know you're a good teacher heck I even admire you he's cutting through the devout respected denomination the Pharisees, he's cutting through this important religious person, through the high-ranking officials of the Sanhedrin. Whatever it was that Nicodemus might think was validating his pathway to God, Jesus just cuts off at the source. Whatever it is that you think is validating your search for God, he cuts off at the source. And he says, Nicodemus, put my name in, put your name in, unless you come in this way that I have ordained, and you be born again, you can do nothing to see the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, no, faith is not through miracles. And he's saying, no, faith is not through religious living. You can't follow a set of laws and come to me. You can't be even the leader of your people and think that somehow that will bring you to me. You can't even believe that I'm good and believe that I exist. Sometimes I find we get it confused. People say, well, because I believe that Jesus exists, therefore I believe in Jesus. No, you don't. James says even the demons believe that Jesus exists and tremble. Are they saved? Well, very obviously not. So it's not just simply belief in the existence of Jesus that somehow now that pushes us through into salvation. No, no. We'll get there some more just now. But this, this news for Nicodemus is, is tremendous. It's, it's, it's astonishing news for Nicodemus. And he, he almost responds in ridicule to Jesus. The commentators say that the language, he, he takes Jesus very literally, but he's actually doing it so that he can, he can ridicule Christ. And in that moment, he, he's effectively saying, well, that's ridiculous. How could that happen? How could a man who's been born go back into his mom and be born again? Jesus, you're being doff, is the, is the Afrikaans version of what Nicodemus is saying in this moment. And so then Jesus, gracious as he always is with the Pharisees, not, hits him with the second barrel and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now here we need to hear how Nicodemus would have heard this. Like all religious Jews of his day, Nicodemus knew, he was convinced, utterly convinced that every single Jew would enter the kingdom of God. 
except for two categories of people. Those who have turned away from Judaism and denied their faith. The heresy of denying your faith and apostates. Those are the only two people that wouldn't come into the kingdom of God. To be born a Jew in Nicodemus' mind was to have an inheritance and the inheritance was the kingdom of God. It was that simple. If you were Jewish, you were going to see the kingdom of God. Can you imagine how astonished and afraid and perplexed and deeply disturbed Nicodemus must have been as Jesus said, Nicodemus, you've missed it. You don't understand that you will not see the kingdom of God through the methods that you are trying to see it. Nicodemus in verse 9, utterly astonished, says to him, how can these things be? How can this be, Lord? He says, and then Jesus says to him, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. In other words, you can't by any human effort, flesh, reach something of God, spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. But it hasn't stopped us trying, has it? It hasn't stopped us trying. Still today, we approach the heavenly vending machine, if you would. And we put in our coins and we say, well, this is my good works. And we put in our coin of good works. And we put in our coin of moralism and our coin of law keeping. And I didn't have an affair and I didn't do this. And I'm a good person and I, and I pull in my tax return honestly. Or, you know, maybe we put in a coin of spiritual experimentation. And I want to, I want to try and I'm going to put this experimentation in or, or ex- the experiences that we've had. And we put all these different coins in. Or maybe your coin is paying tithes. How can I be excluded from the kingdom of heaven? I pay my tithes. I'm generous. I'm a generous person. Or maybe your coin is a faithful churchgoer. Man, I just don't miss a Sunday. And at home you've got a little chart. And every Sunday you go, you tick it like your discovery goal. I'm vi- <laughs> And you think that that is what ought to, then you push the go button and out the bottom pops eternal life. <laughs> out the bottom pops kingdom of heaven. And Jesus in this verse is, whatever else you can think of that you want to put into the vending machine is saying, no, no, can't you see that anything earthly is unable to produce things of the spirit? Can't you see that? Can't you see Jesus is saying to us today, looking back at what he has done, Nicodemus didn't have that vantage point yet, but he's, he's saying to them, do you not know that if something earthly could have been done to achieve your salvation, Jesus didn't need to come. The next time you're being tempted to live a moralistic, legalistic life, trying to find your way and get your way to God through that, remember then what is the point of Jesus? Paul in Galatians says this so powerfully in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Listen to this. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if the flesh could have given birth to spirit, Jesus didn't need to come. But because flesh can only give birth to flesh and no matter how good your flesh is and no matter how hard you try and no matter how sincere you are and I don't doubt your sincerity, It still can't give birth to the kingdom of heaven, to the new life. 
Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the Spirit, the kingdom of God. That which, are born is, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Friends, this morning I want to ask you, on what do you hang your religious aspirations this morning? Your ability to get up on a Sunday morning and get to church every Sunday, your ability to be generous, your ability to live in the laws. What pathway are you trying to use to reach God? Maybe you say, well, I get that completely and I've come to God through faith in Christ, in His cross. I know all of that. Let me ask you this this morning. On what are you basing your assurance of salvation as you're working out your salvation and there's this assurance inside of you? On what are you basing it? Still on the cross? Or are you basing that now? So we came to Christ at the cross and now, we, now we're putting in good Christian rules and morals and the fact that we don't sleep with our boyfriend or girlfriend and that's, that's going to sustain us and give us an assurance of our salvation. So firstly, we spoke about man's search for God and then I've been trying to show that we still can't find, like you two says, what we're looking for. And now I want to turn to God's search for man. So in this passage in John chapter 2 and 3, Christ is putting aside Nicodemus and, and the crowds. He's putting aside the attempts to reach God through ways that they would designate. But at the same time, Jesus is extremely graciously saying, but there is a way. But there is a God way to reach him. He has made a way. He hasn't just left us without hope. Jesus doesn't just come and say, that won't work, that won't work, that won't work, that won't work. Good luck. He says, that won't work, that won't work, that. But here's a way. Here's a way that you can come, he says. Turn with me, if you would, to, to Ezekiel. Chapter 36, and I want to show you quickly how this parallels the text in John 3, and we'll get there in a moment. And before that, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in, I think it was Standard 9, or maybe it was Matric, instead of doing work experience, our school had the brilliant idea of doing service experience, all right? So we had to go and find an organization that we could volunteer at for three weeks. That was not like what you wanted to do for your work, but that where you could go and serve. So I went to an old age home, which was fascinating, and just heard so many stories and the whole lot. But I found this, this one day, I went into this room and I was chatting with this older man, and um, he had this chessboard set up. But it looks like it had been like half played and they'd kind of abandoned the game. So I started talking to him about this chessboard and it turns out that this game has been going on for years. He has a friend overseas that he was corresponding with and they would write a letter to one another. How are you? What's going on? Tell each other about their lives. And then they would at the very bottom have a little like move piece L1 to L3. Or something like that. And the whole board had like L's on the side and numbers down the... And they would then move one piece. And then a few months later, whatever, he'd write a letter back to his friend and they'd move. And I thought like the poor cleaner who comes in and knocks that thing over, you know. <laughs> like, so this thing's been... It's like this chess game that's been going on for years as these guys would correspond with one another. And then I thought like when I was preparing this this week, I thought in a similar way, when we come to thinking about God's search for man... He has been having a conversation for, for a very, very, very long time. It's not something we just hear about today, but he's, he's involved intricately in this chess game, if you would, a strategic plan with mankind for thousands and thousands of years. I actually called my preach this morning. Sorry, I forgot to tell you up front. A, th- a thousand year conversation. A thousand year conversation. And where man has been searching for God and still hasn't found him, at the same time, God has been graciously weaving the most incredible story, the most remarkable pathway to him. 
I want to, I've said this here before in New Gen a few years ago, but I want to use it again. I was reading Exodus a couple of years ago and Exodus 6 just, just made me go, wow. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's God speaking to the Israelite people just about before they go out of, of the land of, of Egypt, if you know the story. And he says these profound words. He says, ah, God, God, I will take you to be my people. Ah, God, I'm going to take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And so there's this two-pronged thing. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And it just really resonated with me. It just struck me. So I began investigating it, and I found out that actually it goes back to Genesis 17, where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But the interesting thing is the language is futuristic, isn't it? In Exodus, it's saying, I will be. I will be. You will be my people. But then I went and I found in Revelation chapter 21, if you don't know Revelation, it's a good book. You should go and read it. It's, it's this book all about the end of days when the earth is gone and it's wrapped up and it's kind of so, it's almost like God is writing prophetically. He's speaking back on the history that we yet haven't even lived in. So our future that's still coming is what Revelation is talking about. So it's, it's fascinating. But this is what he says in chapter 21, verse 3, where he's talking about a new heaven and a new earth. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And when I started to look, I found at least, at, uh, so far, I mean, I, I'm going to keep looking, but I found at least 17 different times in, in scripture so far where this exact promise is given. Almost word for word. I will be your God and you will be my people. But now the reason I'm telling you that and the reason that it struck me so much is that it's like the bookends of this plan. Like right after the fall, right there in Genesis chapter 17 with Abraham, God makes this promise. And then for thousands of years, and we don't know when it's going to end yet because revelation hasn't happened. But in thousands of years, he's saying it's fulfilled. This plan that I've been weaving, that I've been putting through in the world is fulfilled. Where I was saying, I will be your God. Now I'm saying, I am your God. I live among my people in the new heaven and the new earth. It's beautiful. It's, it's incredible when we get our minds around this plan that he's been doing. And now this is something in John 3 that where Christ is giving a clue. He's telling him, this is how... The plan is going to unfold. So are you in Ezekiel yet? Ezekiel 36. This is one of, one of the 17 instances where I found this. But it's so beautifully found here because it also is exactly the same scripture that Christ is thinking about in John chapter 3. And you'll see why in a moment. We get a clue as to how God intends to make it so that he can dwell with his people. And verse 24. So Ezekiel 36 and verse 24. It says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle, just go with the imagery for now, I will sprinkle clean water on you that you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone. Oh God, how you know we need that. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then here's the same line again. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And this is a direct reference that Jesus is thinking about in John chapter 3 when he says, when it says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water. He's speaking about this Isaiah, I mean, Ezekiel text. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. Now, we don't immediately know what that means, many of us, right? What it is, is that the, the high priest, during the, during the time of the sacrifice of atonement, when they were making atonement for the Israelite people, would sprinkle water, would sprinkle water as a sign of purification. It's basically a reference to the Spirit, before the Spirit came. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and then Ezekiel says, so John says, and the Spirit, Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. And Jesus is saying, unless that happens, unless that happens, he cannot, continuation of verse 5 in John 3, he cannot enter the kingdom of God because that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. See, it's all part of this great plan. It's all part of this incredible weaving, this tapestry that God has been weaving for thousands of years, that you will be my people and I will be your God. And then in Ezekiel, he's giving us a clue. And in John, he's saying, Christ is here. This is how you can live with God. And the Jews missed the part in Ezekiel where it says, I'm going to call all nations. I'm going to call all countries. There might be like maybe five of us here who have any roots to Jewish claim, Jewish hereditary claim. We're sitting here because of that promise that God said, I will call all nations. I will call all peoples. I will bring Gentiles, us. And so in modern language, in John 3, Jesus could have said, instead of saying, You must be born again. Jesus could have said to Nicodemus, you need a heart transplant. I need to take out the heart of stone within you. I need to do something miraculous that puts in you a heart that's born of the spirit, a heart of flesh. And Jesus in John 3 is saying so beautifully, here is the pathway. You've tried that. You've tried that. You've tried that. It doesn't work. Here is the pathway to eternal life. And then he spells it out for Nicodemus in verse 12. He says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. It's quite a complicated verse. I just want to unpick some of these little things for us so we understand what they mean. What Jesus is in effect is saying is that I came down from heaven to you. You can't go up to heaven to go and find this out for yourself. You can't. Man cannot ascend up to heaven to see, ah, this is what it is. So Jesus is saying, I came down. No one ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. He's saying, I've been there. 
I've seen it. I know. And I'm coming to tell you. And then Jesus uses this odd Old Testament reference. This, he actually uses an illustration. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what in the world is Jesus on about there? Well, he's, he's talking about Numbers chapter 21. And the Israelite people had sinned again, just like us, greatly. Impatience, anger with God, all these things. And so God, yes, God, not the devil, God sends snakes. And these snakes begin to bite the Israelite people. And they're not like, you wouldn't even know this reference, red-lipped heralds and the towel that give you a headache. It's not like that. These are mambas. They're killing people. People are dying in the camp, left, right, and center. So they cry out to God and they repent and they say, Father, we've done wrong. Or God, we've done wrong. Help us, Moses. Help us. And Moses is this type of Christ in this setting. And so God instructs Moses to make a bronze snake and to put it on a tall pole. And they walk around the camp with this tall, this, this bronze snake up high, lifted up high. And as people look at it, they miraculously healed. This is what happens in Numbers chapter 21. And this is what Jesus is referencing when he's speaking to Nicodemus. Whoever looks at the snake lives. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you dead in your sins. The snake has bitten you. You've been bitten. The sin bites you all day long. All day long. All of you are dying in your sin. And he says, but Nicodemus, Jesus, ah, ah, the son of man, I must be lifted up. I must be lifted up. Just like that snake was lifted up on a pole, I must be lifted up, quite literally, crucified and killed. And if you look at that, if you look at my crucifixion and say, I have put my faith in that, you will be healed. From the bite of the evil one. See, friends, the person who is born again is not the person who believes Jesus existed. It's the person who believes on the cross. I know it's so strange. If you're not a believer and that, it's just like, it's so odd to hear that. And you know, you see people wearing a cross around their neck and you think, do you know that's a, that's a symbol of torture? But it's become so precious to us because this is the only narrow gate that we can come to salvation through. Jesus is saying, this is the road open to you. You can't simply believe my teachings. You can't simply believe I'm good. You can't even believe in the miracles that I do and the wonders that I do. And then he says, well, why, why did I do this? Why did I bother? And John 3.16 is so beautiful. We're going to... More than likely, next week I'll be preaching on John three sixteen through to 20-odd and looking at this next section of God's love. Why did he do this? Well, he did it because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I want to ask you again, on what do you hang your religious aspirations this morning? What pathway... Are you trying to use to reach God? On what do you hang your assurance of salvation? Let me end in the next two or three minutes with this question. Why does this matter? Why does any of this matter? Especially if you're a Christian. You're sitting there and you're saying, well, Paul, we know all of this. We know all of this. Why does it matter? Well, it matters because it's a reminder that our salvation and sanctification, our justification and our sanctification is through faith in Christ 
alone. Man, I'm seeing Christian legalism, charismatic legalism, running rife in my own life and in lives of other people. We come to the saving faith of Christ because of faith, and then we try to make it ourselves. I see hope and joy and life begin to be throttled and strangled until you see someone who's been saved for 10 or 15 years, and they look nothing like the person who came to Christ. They look tired. They look exhausted. They're trying to follow rules, and they basically have come to Christ in faith and have then walked in legalism or walked in law. It's an absolute bondage. I think of Galatians, where Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he says, are you so foolish? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, would you now continue in the flesh? Would you now continue by what you want to try and do? And my challenge is the same to us this morning. I'm including myself here. You having begun in the Spirit, those of you who have, those of you who has accepted this salvation through the cross of Christ, having begun in the Spirit, would you now turn to works? Are you going to teach your children faith in the cross? Are you going to teach them works? Because it makes them behave a little bit nicer and your home a bit quieter unless you watch the Formula One. I wonder who won. If anyone's a fan, watch the Formula One in quiet. It matters because of that. It matters because it reminds us that this is a call not to lean on any, any other attempt before God. It matters because this is a call to meditate afresh on what He has done. Man, we get so blasé. Hey, oh, I know Jesus died. Jesus went on the cross. All of this. Thank you, Jesus. Sing a few happy Hillsong songs. And this matters. And we meditate afresh on the wonder of the gospel. It's actually a call to praise. When we think about this, I don't know how we don't respond in praise. I don't know how we don't respond with worship from our lips. It matters, friends, because when we see those around us that we love, our family members, our friends, those, we, those we're trying to disciple, those that we're leading, when we see them beginning to slip into a works-based gospel, when we see them beginning to try other roads other than the road that God has ordained for us, it matters that we stop and have the courage to say to them, that road is going to lead not to joy. That is not going to take you where God is intending for you to go. And especially this morning, it matters if you don't know this Jesus. If you don't know this Christ and you're trying with all sincerity in your heart to reach him, to somehow find God as if he was lost, I want to commend to you again the basic, simple gospel of Jesus. That you believe in faith that what Jesus has done on the cross is taken sin from you has justified you in all its mystery. If there's anyone like that this morning, I'm going to pray and just close off the meeting. I want to ask you, please, in your heart, would you respond to the Father? Some of you, it's been a long journey. You've been thinking about this. You're not sure. You have so many questions. It's okay. God is big enough to deal with our doubt. Do you know that? Do you know that God is big enough to deal with your doubts? He's not scared of your questions. There's no question. God's like, <gasps> even when you're saved, you know you can still doubt that it's okay, that it's good sometimes. And Jesus is gracious enough, like with Thomas, who says, he says, come Thomas, come, I know you're doubting. I know you're struggling. 
But come and see. What a gracious moment from our King. What grace. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as I've tried to unpack your word, Lord, I just, I'm, I'm astounded by what you've done for us, God. When, when I look at you teaching Nicodemus and saying, Nicodemus, you've missed it. This is what actually happened. This is what actually was my plan. God, it's a beautiful plan. It's a mysterious plan. But it's, it's incredible to think that God, that you would come down to earth and be squeezed into the form of a man. And then, not just that, but then die. And then raised from the grave again. And then ascended up to heaven. And then taught us as your disciples, as your followers, taught us that if we would put our faith in you, that you would justify us too. And that we could be hidden in Christ, inside of Christ, that just as he was crucified, so are we crucified. Just as he is now spotless and sinless, so are we. Just as he is declared righteous, so will we be on that day, and so are we now in this moment. Thank you, God. Thank you. I'm so grateful, Lord, that you reached into my family. That you reached into my grand's life. Those 40 odd years ago, God. And that you changed the trajectory of our lives. That you changed family after family after family in our wider family, God. And that my parents brought me up knowing and loving you, God. I am grateful. This thing matters, God. It matters in the very practical areas of our lives, God, in the way that we live our marriages. God, I could not do my marriage without the gospel. I could not live my life without the gospel. Father, where that fire has grown cold in hearts this morning, Lord, across this room, Holy Spirit, I invite you right now, I ask you to come and touch as we meditate on you later on today through our week, God, would you graciously confront us in our doubts? Con confront us in our apathy? We need you even to draw us to you, God. Even to draw us to you, we need you, Father. Father, and then there may be those here this morning that don't know you God I cry out on their behalf that they would come home I know that you as the good father are standing scanning the horizon for your prodigal sons and daughters Thank you, Father. In Jesus' wonderful name, we ask these things. Amen.